0: g'day mate welcome to episode 58 of the exponential performance podcast in this week's episode we are going granular we're digging into zone five which is all about training your vo2 max or your maximal oxygen consumption in zone five you can also train your anaerobic capacity depending on the length of your intervals and the length of your recovery phases we're also going to have a look at the willingness to suffer and experience pain in our Harden Up project segment. So let's get into it.
1: Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Matty Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. G'day mate, welcome to episode
0: 58 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. It is so good
1: to have you here. Nick, how you doing mate? Oh, I am good, thank you. I'm good, although well, I'm starting to think these weekly podcasts are a good way to make the weeks like disappear. Um, they just seem to roll around and it's Monday and here we go. Mate, I tell you what, it, they do sneak
0: up on you and by the time you, uh, you've I've edited it all and got it uploaded and sent it out to everyone, it's it's time for the next one. Yeah. So there's a bit of work in them.
1: Yes, yes, I'd leave all the professional recording to to the man himself, DJ Graham.
0: Mate, there's not much professional about it. But um, I have realised that you can get sick through podcasting because I think I've caught your
1: uh, cold from last week. Well, you don't maybe sound quite as husky or as nasally as I did, but... Maybe, maybe a little harden up on the, the cold front, or is this a, an excuse pre-epic in case I, I take you on the line?
0: <laughs> Mate, I, I wish it was, um, but I have been shoveling the concrete and cement pills down uh, furiously in the morning to hopefully harden up and get over it. I am battling through, uh, but the, yeah, the, the, the throat's a little croaky and there's a little bit chesty going on, so we'll see what happens. It was funny because it happened like the, the day after I entered as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've been putting it off for so long to make sure like my knee comes right and all these other little niggles. Yep. And then I, I bit the bullet and entered and then I sick the next day. So yes. What exactly. are you going to do? Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, today we're going to crack into zone five the final of our heart rate training zone series that we've been doing over the last few weeks. And so I'll pass over to you, Nick, to uh, give us a wee intro into Zone 5.
1: Cool. So if you've been, I guess, keeping score from a percentage of lactic threshold point of view, you will know that we are now at 100%. um, And and Zone 5 kind of kicks off from that 100% mark. So anything above 100% you're going to be working well, I guess, with a mixed energy system. So you're going to be uh, producing lactate at a level potentially that your body's not clearing quite as quickly. Um, So we're into a lot shorter, we're into a lot harder, more intense, more taxing um, kind of training zones and training percentages. Um, And the, the first one of those is essentially a VO2 max. So most of you probably are familiar with the term VO2 max, but you might not actually understand what it means. Um, so, the VOG max is essentially the the volume of oxygen that you can consume in a minute of exercise, um, and it is specific to your body weight as well, so it generally is expressed as a, a, a milliliters of oxygen per kg of body weight. So when we're looking at this 100 to kind of, about 105% of your lactic threshold, um, it's a VO2 max of around, you know, four, or four to five minutes, five minutes for your highly trained athletes in terms of sustainability. Um, and then you need to back off and have some pretty easy recovery um, pretty much in that one-to-one ratio. Um, so if it was a, a three-minute interval, then you got three minutes recovery. Um, the beautiful thing that I love about VO2 is you can kind of go again quite quickly. As long as you get to a, a point of, I guess, exhaustion, or, or maximally out um, within that percentage, then you can recover and go again quite quickly. And you tend to get the same sort of result each time. Um, there is obviously a, a period of time you can't just keep doing that on and off throughout the day. Um, but if you look at VO2 max testing, which is often done in a lab, um, you've got a gas mask and analysis uh, going on, um, you can kind of get to a VO2 max point over a, what they call a ramp test, uh, which is, a I guess, stepping up the intensity every few minutes until you get to a point of exhaustion. Um, once you've recovered from that, um, again, in that sort of 20-minute, so generally the tests are 15 to 20 minutes, 20 minutes recovery, you can go again and get to pretty much the same point, um, which is quite cool. Um, but I've rambled a little bit there, so I'm going to let Maddie step in and give us an explanation to this from, a, I guess, the energy systems point of view. Which yeah, is, so back to, back to the energy
0: systems. It always comes back to the energy systems, and... Uh, With training zones, that's the whole point of having training zones and monitoring our training intensities so that we can make sure we're uh, exploiting or tapping into the right energy systems um, to do the types of training that are going to give us the adaptations that we are after. So as Nick said, VO2max is simply that maximal level of oxygen that your body can uptake and use. And it relies on a couple of different factors. There is the the consumption of the oxygen, so breathing it in, it it includes our heart, our lungs, the amount of blood that we have to transport the oxygen, and then also at the muscle, having enough of those, or having a number of those mitochondria to uptake and use the oxygen. So when we're training in zone five, what we're trying to do is stress that delivery system and also the usage system at the other end. So you can think of um, those little mitochondria in your muscles as the powerhouses or the power stations of your body. They are the things that are producing aerobic energy. And then all the blood and the oxygen being delivered to them, it's kind of like the transport. If you think of a coal-fired power station, this is the trucks taking the truckloads of coal to the power stations to then burn and and produce energy. We're taking oxygen um, to those... Um, power stations, and then they use, or in this case, carbohydrate to produce their energy at this intensity, um, gives us energy to move. So with our energy systems, if we remember back to a couple of episodes ago, we talked about having three different pots boiling on the top of a stove, and that we've got our um, PCR system, ATP, PCR system boiling away there, and it's we turn that up whenever we want to uh, do really high-intensity efforts, sprints, little surges, little bursts. And then we've got our anaerobic glycolytic system that's going to produce that lactate, and that's simmering away there as well. When we want to put in a bit of a burner as well, we we dial that up. And then we've got our aerobic energy system pot boiling away, and that sort of underpins everything, and it's always boiling away. And one of the, the sort of Uh, questions I get quite a lot is that if anaerobic threshold happens down in zone 4, then why is it still aerobic, our maximal aerobic capacity in zone 5? Well, just remember that when you cross over your anaerobic threshold, you're not immediately 100% anaerobic. Remember, when we cross our anaerobic threshold, anaerobic energy production just becomes the predominant way of producing energy. That aerobic energy pot is still boiling away there on the on the stove at full noise, producing as much aerobic energy as possible. However, that anaerobic energy system is now just kicking into full swing as well, um, meaning that there's a lot of lactate being produced. So that aerobic energy pot doesn't actually get up to a full boil, a full head of steam if you like, until zone five. And it only happens for a very short period of time. That's why if we're looking at developing our body's maximal rate of oxygen consumption, or our VO2 max, what we need to do is train it very intensely because we're looking at stressing the delivery of that oxygen and the use of that oxygen. So it needs to be very intense for a very short period. Well, not a very short period of time, but a short period of time relative to say our zone two training. So around that three to five minute mark is, is a really good amount of time. And then we need to have a relatively long period of recovery, that one-to-one. So if you do a three-minute effort, you're going to need three minutes of recovery. This allows time for our lactate to decrease because we are over our anaerobic threshold. Lactate is produced. So we need our lactate to decrease so that one, we can get back up to that maximal intensity to stimulate that aerobic capacity. But then also, if we're getting a lot of lactate accumulating in our body, then we're actually training our anaerobic capacity or anaerobic threshold, and that actually, that presence of that lactate shuts down the, the production of aerobic energy through our mitochondria. So it's really important that we get rid of that lactate so that we can train our VO2 max. If you do wanna train your anaerobic capacity or that ability to withstand lactate, then by all means shorten that recovery down and let it build up. But remember, it's about having that specific outcome or that specific goal of the training session. And if it's VO2 max, you need to let that lactate dissipate so that you can train at the correct intensity.
1: There you go. How comprehensive does that get, eh?
0: Pretty it's probably just confused the, <laughs> hopefully it hasn't confused everyone more than uh, than we already were
1: no I think it, it, the and I think I said to this earlier that the pot analogy really mm. for me just it still helps me bring home the uh, the idea that you, you're always using all three pots essentially um, just a little bit different in terms of the percentage from each one uh, which is home. really cool.
0: And when I heard that as well, it's kind of a nice analogy in that if you can imagine you've got a limited amount of gas, because we do in our, in our gas tanks, and so if you turn up, say, our ATP-PCR system and put in a massive burst, well, the gas is going to run out really quickly because, uh, let's say, that pipe has a massive opening that lets a lot out at one time. Get a massive flame, boils really quickly, but it runs out of gas pretty quick. The aerobic energy system those has got a smaller opening where the gas comes out. So it can be longer and more sustained. Uh, and once you've turned it up to its max, you know, obviously it does run out eventually, but it's got a longer duration. And then our uh, anaerobic glycolytic system is somewhere in the middle there. So you're constantly juggling these knobs about which one you're going to turn up to to get those energy. That energy that you need for for whatever the given task is, and I guess that's pacing, isn't it?
1: Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is pacing. Um, and I probably wouldn't have picked that myself, but when you when you talk about the the different, um, I guess openings, um, that is exactly what our body's doing from a pacing point of view, um, mm. regulating our speed and our pace and our power um, based on how far we want to go.
0: Yep. Um, yeah, and it's not quite as simple, I guess, as uh, a couple of knobs and and uh, <laughs> gas coming out of a pipe, but it gives no. you a bit of an idea, I guess.
1: It does. And it's quite a, um, I guess, with the rise of e-bikes, there's now, a lot of them have an app that you can log into and set, hey, I'm going to ride for four hours or seven hours or whatever, and it will set the amount of battery power that it gives you to make sure oh, it holds on really? for the period of time. And I think that's a really cool analogy for the human body. You know, if we could mm-hmm. dial it say, right, okay. Um, an ideal pacing strategy for seven hours is this. We go out there and we sort of push ourselves maximally within that period of seven hours, I guess, would be really cool. That
0: is cool. And I kind of, we can kind of do that as we talked about last week, it, didn't we, in terms of as long as we're as pacing in terms of where our anaerobic threshold is, mm. then we should, like if you're saying you're doing a five-hour race and you stay 10% below your anaerobic threshold for the majority of the race, then, um, you know, you should you should be right. It, I guess the problem comes when... Um, the the human mentality isn't quite as uh, disciplined as a e-bike battery uh, yep. app <laughs> at uh, regulating the pace. And as soon as the gun goes, everyone's off at a mad rush, and I've got that eight, uh, that uh, anaerobic glycolytic gas path <laughs> turned up to the max, and it's burning through the gas. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of byproducts coming off <laughs> with it as well. And before so, we know it. We've run out of gas out coming out of that pipe, so we just have to put it on the low simmer of the aerobic system.
1: Yes. Yes. Cool. So that's, I guess, part, part one of Zone 5. Um, and now for pretty much all sports that are aerobic-based, so in the endurance world that we're talking about, you need some sort of VO2 max training within your training plan. Um, and maybe next week as we sort of tie everything together, um, we can look at how that will fit in. Uh, but... Tends to be obviously the the more um, I guess sprintier, shorter, punchier kind of races that you're doing, whether it be a half iron, ah, sorry, yeah, half iron man, half marathon, sprint tries, um, road cycling uh, races. There's there's a a bigger component of that is harder, sprinty kind of couple minute bursts, back off for a bit, couple minutes over here, back off for a few minutes as well, um, versus your Longer steady-state races, you your full marathons, full Ironmans, and so forth. So the, the more that you require those sort of punchy efforts in your race, uh, the closer to race day you should be doing those punchy efforts. Um, again, if you're doing the longer steady-state, you might want to sort of avoid them in the final sort of eight-week build-up um, in terms of trying to maximise what you're doing. Um, but part two of Zone 5 is our anaerobic capacity. Uh, now, this is where things get pretty much, you know, full-on maximal, um, punching out as much as you can do, um, generally upwards of about 30 seconds. Um, there's not too many, too many people that can go much more than that, and it's a, it's a trickier zone because, you know, would sort of say 106-plus percentage of your uh, lactate threshold, but it's really hard to measure that because your heart rate takes, you know, a few seconds, sometimes a minute, to actually come up into a zone. If you're working really hard, um, so by the time you've done your maybe 20 second interval, your heart rate's just coming up and just touching the, uh, the zone, um, and then you're backing off your your power, your um, speed, whatever sort of discipline you're using. So you really have to trust your mental ability to push yourself as hard as you possibly can, um, or in terms of bike training, um, using your power meters. If you are using a power meter. Um, is a good way to be able to tell that because your power is, is sort of responsive as per um, the second um, versus heart rate, which isn't. So it does take a little bit more practice because you have to make sure that you're pushing yourself as hard as you can. Um, you know, you could do a 20-second burst and think you're going as hard as you can, but you're actually 5 or 10% underneath that, um, and you're not going to get the benefits of that training. Um, but it is more of a, a maximal sprint zone, so it's not specific for a lot of endurance racing. Um, you know track runners um track cyclists um, kayakers of of shorter duration um it is quite specific for um and a lot of that can be helped trained through your strength training uh but those those anaerobic intervals from a capacity point of view um need to be really short really hard um and you just have to kind of trust that you 're pushing yourself harder
0: Hmm. and i'd almost say that. Anything in zone five, say if it was a VO2 max interval, I'd just prescribe it as a, a max effort. <clears throat> go as hard as you can for, let's say it's three minutes. And you sort of know that for three minutes you can you can once you've done a couple of them you can pace yourself. It's obviously not a maximal sprint for three minutes because you can't maximally sprint for three minutes, but you can go maximal for three minutes. And almost uh, ignore your heart rate because the heart rate usually takes sort of 30 45 maybe 60 seconds to respond to work there's a little bit of a lag there because heart rate's driven by everything that's happening in your body and that once uh the body needs more oxygen then it sort of sends that signal to drive the heart rate up so you just need to be aware of that that lag there and you'll be well aware of that if you've done some intervals before You'll find that over that first minute, the heart rate takes a while to respond, even though you're putting in the effort. And so anything in that zone 5 area, I'd just say if it's 3 minutes, just go as hard as you can for 3 minutes. If you're looking at not necessarily developing your VO2 max, but potentially your anaerobic capacity, and the only thing that's different between those two intensities is kind of the duration. So rather than doing a 3 minute interval, you might be doing a 30 second interval, and just go as hard as you can for thirty seconds. There's definitely gonna be no response in heart rate from that. So it's kind of just that that intensity or sorry, that time of the intervals and the recovery that differ between the two, isn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I still quite like the use of these sort of thirty second to a minute intervals for endurance trainers. Not not too close to the race state, but in terms of just physically training your mind, essentially, to work hard, and to sustain mm. a hard effort, and think, okay, right, I'm, you know, blowing <laughs> um and I've got 20 seconds to go, uh, but I've got to hold on, I've got to, you know, got to get to the minute, got to get to the minutes, but, you know, charging for the line, trying to beat the person ahead of you, with uh, type of thing in a race, or whatever it might be, they're really good for, for mentally just making sure you can sustain yourself for a period of time. Um, oh, yeah, because they hurt. They do. They do, and it's quite interesting, if you do enough of them, you get to a point where you can be like, okay, uh, you, you know what the time is, you know, right, this is my, my 35, 40 seconds, but I've got to hold on to a minute. Every interval tends to be, oh man, it's, it's only 40 seconds, only 40 seconds, uh, because your body's responding and it's changing in those different systems. Um, the lactate's building up, you can feel the burn, um, and it's really quite, quite a cool t- sort of training to do. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a long session. Um, and you can get a bit of quite a good benefit out of them if you utilize them properly.
0: And it probably should come to a warning that come with the warning that when you do these, the kind of space time continuum definitely warps a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> and you're going like as hard as you can and you look down and you watch and it's been like 10 seconds and you're like, oh, come on. Surely.
1: Yeah. Surely. But then, you know, you look at your watch and your recovery and it's like, oh, I can't be two minutes already. <laughs> exactly. It goes the <laughs> opposite going. way. It does. It goes the opposite way. When you're
0: working hard,
1: it just, space-time
0: continuum slows down, and then as soon as you hit the recovery, boom, it's like hyperspeed. Yeah, It's a weird one. Surely it's a, something <laughs> to do with physics and, I don't know, the rest of it.
1: <laughs> so another, I guess, way to utilize the zone five intervals is if you are short on time in your training. There's some really cool evidence and I know Maddie's talked about them before and we'll get him to link over in the show notes to to some of the videos that he's done, but utilising five or six, you know, 30 second maximal uh, intervals uh, with a decent sort of, you know, four and a half minute recovery uh, is equivalent to doing a 60 minute kind of steady state training session from a a fuel metabolism uh, point of view, which can be really beneficial if you are It's crunch for time if you are stuck inside training, whether it be on a wind trainer or a treadmill um, due to weather or because you live in an environment you can't get out and um, train. It's not going to make you the best endurance athlete in the world if you only do that sort of training. You're going to fall short on a a number of bases, but it's a really cool option to be able to utilize um, to supplement your training uh, at times when you can't get out and do the the longer, steady-state stuff, Um, that's for sure. Mm,
0: like I think it's such a it's such a, a good little tool to have in your toolbox, so to speak. And um like wow. I, I've I've used it a lot myself personally, training for long, long events, um, to when you, when I'm short on time and simply because I was i quite hyper aware of it I guess because I did my masters on it. Um, and I was just I couldn't believe it when I first first read about it, that that uh, you can get similar adaptations to to 60 minutes. So a lot of these research studies were done on untrained individuals which kind of means that they get a lot of benefit from doing not much so we need to be careful how we apply this to athletes as well. Um, But the idea is if you are short of time, then going harder can kind of make up for the lack of duration. So if you are short of time, doing short, either 30 seconds, even shorter, 20 seconds, doing some minute intervals, making sure that your recovery periods are long enough so that you can hit it hard again afterwards are all really good ways of of boosting or maximizing that time if you don't don't have it. Um, like Nick said, I wouldn't recommend doing this all of the time. When I've used this uh, for myself or with um, other athletes who are sort of time poor, so to speak, when we've done a really good block of this training, training, they get really good race results. But what happens if you start using multiple blocks of this training, we start to see their aerobic base kind of eroding. So you are getting the same benefits, but what we find... Uh, anecdotally, just in the real-world experiences of using this, is that they do lose a little bit of that ability when races do get really, really long. So if you've already got a really good aerobic base, then you can get away with using quite a bit of this time-crunched training approach. However, you do need to go back and top up that aerobic base uh, from time to time, and that's where it's quite good to have blocks of good aerobic uh, base development top it up so that when you do put in these shorter high intensity training blocks um, and maybe it's in preparation for a race or even if you just don't have time uh, or if it's just a one-off session because let's say you're traveling or something came up at work and you're not able to get your longer session and then you can use these tools quite effectively so again it's just it is very much a tool for your toolbox and not a, a one you know one size fits all I'm now I'm just only going to do high intensity interval training because there is uh that can cause a few issues if you are looking for um some structure around how to use this type of training we do have a training plan over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash plans it's called the time saver cycling plan and again it just builds up over a period of time using this high intensity intervals you can either run that plan as it's set out or you can just pick and, uh, pick and mix, so to speak, some of the sessions from there, slot them into your training. Like I say, when things crop up and you're not able to do your normal, normal plan training or you want some options there. So cool. five, done. Mm-hmm. And next week we will uh, follow up with some of the questions we've had about heart rate zone cool. training, um, and we'll, we'll dig into some of those as well as some of the things you need to watch out for, some of the limitations, uh, and some of the problems that crop up with it. Now, we're going to jump in to the Harden Up project for this week. So this week, I wanted to talk about this concept that I've been talking with a few people about over the last couple of weeks ever since we've started to dig into some of these uh, stories of epic survival and extreme endurance. And it's kind of like this continuum, I guess, of of the willingness to suffer or to tolerate pain. So the idea is, is that these people in these stories have undergone so much and they've put their put everything into it to get them out of a survival situation. And I think that's right at the end of their ability or willingness to suffer pain. If you think right down the other end, which most of us exist in on a day-to-day basis, is that we have this extreme comfort and we're not really too willing to get out of it. So I think all sort of the ability or the willingness to uh, tolerate pain is on that continuum somewhere. And this is something that I've just formulated in my head. There's no no specific research around this, but it seems to make sense to me. So as an example, let's think about a prone hold, a plank position, laying on the ground, on your forearms, up on your toes, contracting your your core. Probably an exercise that 90% of listeners probably would have done, done at some stage. So holding that prone hold position kind of sucks like prone holds are hard what's the record what's the world record for a prone hold name look it up for me what okay. world record for a, it's hours it's something like seven hours or maybe even more <laughs> all right so let's imagine that we're at home and we are doing a prone hold now i can guarantee you're going to start to hurt your core is going to start to shake a little bit and you're not going to really be enjoying it and probably after about I don't know, 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, depending on who you are, you're probably going to get to a point where you say, ah, that's enough, I've, I've, I've done, I can't be bothered suffering enough. Have you found it? Yeah. What is it? Eight, eight hours and one minute. Eight, eight hours and one minute. So, yep. eight hours and one minute's the world record. And you're, you know, laying on your living room floor at, at about the one and a half minute mark. I don't know, time yourself when you get home today. And... Just see where it is for you, and because it hurts, it does hurt. Now, if I was to introduce some more people into the situation, or take you from your living room and put you in a gym with a lot of other people, or I jumped down on the floor beside you and did the prone hold with you, you would be able to tolerate that pain for longer. Not because physically anything's different, but just mentally. There is this uh, theory around social facilitation theory, and I talked about it in episode 47 when we talked about uh, Strava. And social facilitation theory says that when people around you go harder, you will go harder as well. And this is why um, you know people ride harder to get KOMs because they're they're not directly around other people, but there's this virtual facilitation happening from other people. So if I took you to a gym where there were other people or got down on the mat beside you and started doing it, or there was some form of accountability, I want you to tell me how long you held that prone hold for. You would have a greater capacity to withstand the pain or tolerate that pain, you'd push through it because you didn't either want to let people down, didn't want to be embarrassed, whatever it might be. So let's say at home you could do 30 seconds or a minute. If you had other people around, let's say you did that three minutes. You're really starting to work. The next step, I say, think, is if you're in a competition, it, you always push harder in a competition. And I think everyone would probably feel that. On race day, they always, hopefully, push harder than they did in, in training. So if you were to make this prone hold a competition with other people directly, no doubt you would go longer and push harder than you would if you were just in your living room by yourself or with a couple of other people. The thing I think the next step is potentially this competition with really high stakes. So let's say it's a crack at the world record or it's... Uh, you've got to bet on with a mate that if you can't last this long, you've got to give them money. Or I really like the idea of um negative bets in that if you lose, you have to donate towards something that you really hate, <laughs> if that makes sense. So like if I don't prone hold for 17 minutes, um, I'm going to donate towards... um the the bill to get e-bikes into all races or something like that something that you just can't stand the thought of donating money towards the negative bit or donating money to to the kkk or what whatever it might be it makes you want to work harder because you don't want to have to do that thing so i think a competition a competition with high stakes is would would make you work harder it would push you push you more and then I think finally we get down to that end of life and death. If you put your knees down on the prone hole, you were going to die, or at least risk some sort of physical injury, or someone that you cared about was going to die. I would guarantee you were pushing much, much harder, and you were willing to experience way more pain uh, and suffering than, uh, than you were Back down the other end at home, on the couch, or even in a competition, so why have we been talking for five minutes about this continu this make made up continuum of us uh, pain and suffering? Well, I think we can kind of use this concept um, in our training in that if we think that we get this uh improvement in our ability to push ourselves and our ability to hold on, uh, hold on or, or push harder or experience more pain when there's others around or it's a competition, why not use that in training? So for an example, if we've got a killer set of zone five VO2 max intervals, and we need to be pushing ourselves hard to get the desired result, then why not do it with others? Because we know we're gonna push ourselves harder when others are around if you're sitting at home by yourself on your wind trainer in the in the lounge, you're probably not gonna push yourself as hard if you were sitting around with a bunch of other people on wind trainers. Let's call it a spin class. Do you know what I mean? Are you always gonna push yourself harder when there's other people around? On the flip side of that, if you've got a recovery session or a zone two session that needs to be done at a very specific pace, which is, tends to be lower, then potentially do it by yourself because we know that when we get into those situations with others, we're going to be pushing ourselves harder. Um, Try upping your race stakes. Rather than just doing the race, seeing where you come, maybe upping those stakes a little bit, whether that be within your friend group or making a negative bet, whatever it might be. This way you know that you're going you're going be pushing yourself harder, and I think the main thing is is that just knowing that you 've got more to give because the difference the physical difference between you at home doing a prone hold or in a life and death situation doing a prone hold trying to get to that eight hour and one minute record it'd be super interesting to know if the old record was eight hours and you know, <laughs> eight hours flat and you just did one more minute <laughs> that'd be super funny. Do you, you have more to give? Because nothing physically is different apart from this mental. Sure, there's a bunch of different hormones and neurotransmitters like adrenaline uh, coursing through your body to help you push through it. But the only thing that's changed that is the situation and our perception of that situation. Another great example is thinking back to last week's story about touching the void in Joe Simpson. How willing would you be to crawl over snow and rocks for sixteen kilometers with no food and water for three days? So if we were just jumped off the couch and said, All "Right, I'm going to start crawling now. I'll see you on sixteen k's." You're probably going to get, you know, a couple of hundred meters down. Maybe not even that. Like a, I'm going to say fifty meters down the road after crawling on, you know, hard rocks and concrete or whatever it is. Your knees are going to be sore, and you're like, "Oh, that's done." I don't really care. There's no point to this. However, if you are in the middle of the Peruvian Andes and you've just fallen down a crevasse, you've finally got yourself out of it, and your only lifeline is 16 kilometers away and you've got to crawl to get there, remember, because you've got a broken leg, then you're going to be able to dig and access way more than if you were just than if you were just, you know, crawling down your street because you thought it would be fun to do. So developing that ability to know that you have more to give and that ability to do that is a mental ability, not a physical one. Because just like our prone hold at home versus our prone hold with other people show, you physically have the ability to do it. It's just mentally being able to tap into it. So how can we improve this ability to push ourselves harder? Because I think this continuum is a nice idea. It gives us um, that, that rationalization that we can push ourselves harder. But here are some other things that I like to do uh, I and I think can help you improve your tolerance to not just pain or exercise pain, but discomfort as endurance events often, you know, throw at us. And I've talked a lot about these in the Performance Temple Handbooks, especially in the Psychology Handbook, where I've got a, a Harden Up segment in that as well. And in there, I talk about knowing why you're doing something. If you're doing a really hard interval set, knowing why you need to push that hard, is really important. Knowing why it hurts, at least for me, I think that helps me rationalize the whole process. It's not about, man, this hurts, I feel like I'm gonna die. It's, oh, this hurts just because a lot of lactate's been produced. Along with that comes those hydrogen ions. My blood's turning a little bit acidic. It's just burning. As soon as I stop, it's going to go away. The only way that I can get better at dealing with this is by exposing myself to it. Having those sort of rational conversations with yourself helps develop that ability. And it also changes that perception of it. We talked about it a couple of episodes ago when we talked about that perception of suffering. If we uh, have the perception that this is so hard and it's absolutely killing me, then you're probably going to stop relatively quickly. However, if you think that this is just what it feels like to push hard, and to push hard and to go fast is the name of the game, then the harder I push, the faster I'm going to go. So knowing that why behind things and understanding that. Interestingly, I read something in a uh, coaching book uh, a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember exactly what the book was called, but in it it said those people that struggle with mathematics really like to know the why behind things. And it struck a chord with me because I suck at maths. And I love knowing the why behind things. And it said that people that don't aren't very good at maths like to know why things work because to them, maths, maths just has a lot of set rules that if you do this, this happens. However, that doesn't really... Uh, compute with them. So people that re- are really good at maths often don't really care about why things happen because if you follow the rule, it happens, if that makes sense. But for those people that aren't very good, and I'm like, well, why does that actually work? <laughs> like, I just don't want to aimlessly follow this rule. I thought it was, it was kind of cool. Other things that can help you develop your ability to withstand discomfort and suffering. I really like cold water training. So cold showers, getting in a cold lake, whatever it might be, it's, it's just really good for changing that perception of what's happening. Again, it's no longer about, oh, this water's so cold, it's freezing, get me out of here. It's like, how can we deal with this? Like, it's only cold water. One that links really closely with this is breath control. As soon as you start to let your breathing run away from you, it starts to change the physiology in your body. You start to get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide, and this is where you can start to get quite um, lightheaded. And as you start to get into that panicked breathing, it starts to set off a a lot of negative uh, thought processes as well. So if you can control your breathing, then you can control your physiology. That makes sense. If you can slow your breathing down and control your heart rate, which you can, your breathing directly controls your heart rate, then you have a direct link to control your physiology, which is kind of a cool concept. So when things are getting really hard, then if we can focus on controlling our breathing, that can help a lot. And not just in exercise or in training and racing, but also in in life in general. And we can talk more about that another day potentially. One of my favorite ways of improving your ability or your willingness to suffer or tolerate pain and discomfort is what I call Mother Nature training sessions. How many times have you looked out the window and said, Oh, it's a bit wet, it's a bit windy, I'm probably going to give training a miss today, or I'll just hit the indoor trainer. Now, Mother Nature training sessions aren't always good for getting the desired training result, as if you've got the super structured interval set where you need to go and work on, on such and such a thing and all you're trying to do is keep forward momentum into headwind or not fall out of your kayak because the waves are so big. That's not great for that specific training outcome, but man, it can do a lot for that mental ability to withstand adversity. So the next time it's an absolute shitter of a day, rug up put your rain jacket on, and, and get out there in it. And it makes a huge difference. I remember going into many races. I mean, I grew up on the West Coast, so we're kind of born with a rain jacket. Uh, we get issued at the hospital rain jacket and gumboots because it rains there a lot. And if we stayed inside, then it we wouldn't go out and do anything because it's wet most of the time. I remember a lot of races where there'd be people just really uh, nervous about the weather or trying to think about what to do because of the weather or trying to stay dry underneath like little, you know, a little awning or underneath um, a little building or whatever, all shelter around trying to stay dry before the race. And there was me just standing out in the rain or or doing my warm-up in the rain, like not not caring because as soon as you start, you're wet. You know, your skin, if you didn't know, your skin's actually waterproof. Um, And most bikes are waterproof as well, believe it or not. So it doesn't actually, doesn't matter at all. And I love the saying, you can either be wet, cold, and miserable, or you can just be wet and cold. Again, it just comes back to that perception of, of what's happening. And one of the best ways is just to get out in Mother Nature as long as you're doing it safely, obviously, don't go and um, get yourself into really dodgy situations. But getting out there and being comfortable being uncomfortable goes a long way, especially in long endurance races, where the weather can play a big part. And it's amazing how much people let the weather influence how they're feeling or how they're performing. Um, everyone's going through the same weather. you know. You, it's just how you deal with it at the, at the end of the day. So I love Mother Nature training sessions. Be safe out there, but definitely get out there. And they're usually the most memorable as well. Like, I remember getting lost and uh, getting, you know, really bad weather condition. The sessions that go terribly because they turn into epics because something didn't go right are the ones that you remember, the ones that, you know, you're riding in the snow. Do you remember that one when we rode over to Forey Flat that time for that? i like took out that race course for that duathlon, and it was snowing, and everyone got super cold. Do you remember that? Yeah. That was epic, wasn't it?
1: It was. was It was.
0: Absolutely epic. So I love a good old Mother Nature training session. And the other thing would be to train with others. Training with others who are better than you, um, who push you, who make you dig deeper. All of those things add up to help develop that ability to undergo more more pain, more suffering, more discomfort. Because again, endurance sport and pain, suffering, discomfort go hand in hand. It's just how we deal with those that makes a really big difference. Remember, it's all about resetting that normal level. A lot of people who are starting into endurance sport, they're still in that mindset of trying to avoid discomfort, avoid pain. But as soon as you realize that it's part of it and it's the dealing with it that's the most important thing, then it goes a long way. Thoughts on that, Nick Taylor?
1: Oh, It's quite, a, I guess quite an interesting continuum, um, really, between perception and, and reality. Um, and I think it's, you, you sort of sum it up in terms of, uh, for me, I'm a, of late I've become a better nature trainer, mother nature trainer um and just embracing the weather and, and getting out there and doing it um and you can can actually enjoy it like you said you know the first couple of minutes might be a little bit annoying because you're getting wet and cold and then you're like well i'm now i'm wet and i'm cold so might as well just embrace it and carry on uh, yeah yeah no point being miserable just be wet exactly. and cold. yeah <laughs> and yeah it's it's a i guess the mental component of pain is a perception isn't it like we put ourselves we yes. enter races we choose to be coached or we choose to do, you know, biking, running, swimming, kayaking, climbing, whatever it is, because we love it, but it hurts sometimes. Mm. So if we can embrace the pain and, and use the pain for doing more, doing, you know, going faster, going higher, you know, whatever the case may be, then we're going to have more fun. And it's just trying to, to rewire the thought pattern, okay, this, this hurts, this is a bit of, this sucks at the moment. But it's for a greater, greater good, or the, the knowing your why, like you said, yeah.
0: um,
1: why I'm out here, why I'm doing this, um, because generally because you love it. Um, yeah. And if you don't love it, and and we all know that I've been, I've entered races and I've I've attempted things that I didn't do didn't do because I wanted to do it. I did it because I thought I should be doing it, or other people were doing a, an event, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll tag and do that one. Um, mm-hmm. And it's no good. It's you, you can't push through those barriers when they come up. Um, but when you choose to do it yourself and it's your drive and your determination, then the, the barriers are a lot smaller, even though they're the same physical barrier. Absolutely. Uh, that pretty much
0: sums it up. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, the Harden Up project is not about suppressing your emotions and manning up. And it's not about being physically violent or aggressive towards others and telling them to harden up. Hardening up is about you developing an understanding that no matter how hard something gets, no matter how cold, wet, hungry, scared, frustrated, tired, or sore you are, you have more to give. And how do we know that you've got more to give? Well, there are others out there who have come before you that have been in more challenging situations than you and they're able to give more, and they have given more. And that's why I like digging into these stories around these extreme cases of endurance, of survival, because it really shows what the human body and the human mind uh, are capable of. And if we can learn from them and take even just a little bit from them, then we can be better at training, at racing, and at life in general. So Mm. get out there hard harden up Done. mate thanks for listening if you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future you can do so in a number of ways firstly make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. Make sure you check out the range of t-shirts we have over at the Exponential Performance Podcast Store, and this includes the Harden Up t-shirts. All the profits from these will go straight back into the podcast directly to help the production of it. Or if you would like to make a small $1 donation, you can do so over at the exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash donate page. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly train